Hello everyone, welcome to the very first episode of Spit Out the Bones, a series about art and experiences that made me who I am. Note, episodes in this series are about stories, mostly my own. Since most of the stories I have to tell you are about myself, and they take place in the past, they might not exactly reflect my exact positions on any given subject were you to ask me about it today. Then again, the things I'm writing about in this series led to the person you seem to like today, so perhaps we can call it a wash? These episodes are also produced with a minimum of research. The purpose here is twofold. First, I want to actually write these in a timely manner without descending into the research spiral that anything to do with history, my own or anyone else's, usually sends me into. Second, I am attempting to share the inside of my own head as honestly as possible. Please do not take anything I state here as absolute fact. The only absolute fact is that I thought these facts were facts at the time I wrote them down. Which, now that I think about it, is pretty much the only thing in this life anyone can actually be sure of. The fact of factual assumption at the time of factual formation. I do go on, don't I? <laughs> Let's get to the show. Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Spit Out the Bones. An Introduction. In mid-December of last year, I recorded a podcast episode with my friend Sarah Shea, talking about our favorite holiday television specials of years gone by. We spoke of everything from the familiar joys of Charlie Brown and Dr. Seuss to the more bizarre offerings of Liberace and Alf. It was only after our long Zoom recording session that I ended up starting to remember yet another Christmas special. One that had not so much warmed my heart as spurred my imagination to heights of terror. It was called Noel, after its main character, and I only saw it once when I was about five years old. It would have been an understatement to say that this special left an impression on me. Despite not having seen it for nearly 30 years, I could still describe much of it with frightening clarity. Noel was a small red Christmas ornament that had become animated with a soul after an old glassblower cried a single tear of happiness while creating him. This self-aware bauble is soon purchased as part of a box set, along with a variety of other ornaments, and then hung on a family's tree at Christmas time. Said tree has a deep, soothing voice to match his kindly disposition, and takes the ornament under his wing. Or, should I say, bow. All is well and lovely until Christmas ends and it is suddenly January. Without ceremony, the humans tear the tree down and drag him out the door, much to Noel's and my five-year-old mind's horror. As he is dragged away, the gentle tree admonishes Noel to remain cheerful. The words of the narrator ring in my mind to this very day. And Noel never saw him again. What?! How was this supposed to be a joyful Christmas tale? Even as a child, that felt... wrong. Noel is then shoved in the attic until the next Christmas, whereupon he meets a new friendly tree, who then gets dragged outside only to be replaced in his turn in a darkly bittersweet parade of gentle friends, each one destined to be tossed in the front yard for the skip man. 
Eventually, the family grows old and dies or moves away or something, and the house is abandoned. Until a new family moves in and finds the antique ornaments in the attic. They accidentally break Noel, freeing his happy spirit to fly out across the world, spreading joy in a sequence that is an odd Christmas-themed mashup of Disney's It's a Small World, the end of Dickens's A Christmas Carol, and the trippy Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey. I sat down and wrote the above from memory before I went and found the special on YouTube. You can go find it on YouTube. Noel, it's worth 20 minutes. It's so bizarre. Being that it was only 20 minutes long, I forced a group of friends to watch it with me on New Year's Eve. To my delight, the memories were spot on. Although I had forgotten that the first kindly tree was called Brutus, and the line was actually, And Noel never saw Brutus again. This got me thinking about other pieces of art, or experiences that defined who I am today. Did this dark little fable of animate Christmas decorations perhaps have an influence on my own materialism? My adult life has been a slow process of learning to let physical possessions go, to not hold on to items just because they have some kind of emotional resonance, or might one day be useful. Was I so bad at getting rid of excess possessions because I had learned to anthropomorphize even the most piddling little ball of glass from such a young age? What other childhood experiences of art or activities, trips, or tribulations might have clear correlations with aspects of my adult life? After thinking for a while one evening over a glass of scotch, I sat down and made a list of such things. To my delight, I'd come up with almost a dozen ranging from particular films to activities my parents had organized, which themselves led to exposure to yet more interesting pieces of art. And so was born this series of podcast episodes. Each one will be a sort of semi-autobiographical essay about a formative thing in my life. While this might not be the most globally representative set of artistic works or life experiences, it is mine. To be sure, the person I am today would prefer a more diverse offering. I doubt it would surprise many of you to know that a little white boy growing up religious in the Pacific Northwest of the United States would be fed a steady diet of decidedly weird content. Here, I have half-jokingly used the acronym from psychology used to denote Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Ha ha. All kidding aside, I still believe these experiences deserve examination as they were all critical, formative elements in the artist and person I am today. For instance, if you, dear listener, have ever enjoyed listening to me as an orator, monologuist, or audiobook narrator then is it not interesting to consider that I probably base no small part of my own personal speaking rhythm after a man named George Bedlian that I used to hear talk every Sunday in the mid-90s? If you have ever found my onstage jokes and pattern of speech funny, aren't you at least a little bit curious about the fact that the first comedian I ever saw in person was some guy named Bob Smiley? Maybe it is of interest to you that the film I saw as a teenager that made me feel okay with being an art weirdo with body confusion 
wasn't the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but rather something a bit more underground and weirder. Sure, I'm being deliberately cagey about the specifics of these examples. I don't want to spoil the fun when I talk about them in future episodes of this series. Perhaps all of this is deeply interesting to you. To be sure, I cannot speak for the quality of any of these things as they would appear to someone revisiting them now. I can only share my memories of encountering them as a child. It is only by looking backwards and telling ourselves stories about our pasts that we can decide exactly how we want to move forward into our future. When I began to write this series, I briefly considered taking time to revisit these experiences from my past, as I had with Noel. But I quickly realized attempting to re-experience these things would be a fool's errand. After all, some of them no longer exist. Those that do are bound to contain tremendous disappointment. Not only because memory is faulty, but also because I am no longer the same person who first encountered that thing. For every Lord of the Rings, which will forever reveal greater depths of beauty and insight into the human condition upon each subsequent reading, there is a Transformers the Animated Series. While a rewatch of the Robots in Disguise may still recall fond memories, revisiting it as an adult is, to my mind, an exercise in folly. Not every piece of art or activity grows with us. Some things are best left in childhood. This does not mean they have no value for us in the present, but rather I would argue that their value is chiefly in the role they played at an earlier time, a role that may not be suitable for them to be playing in the modern era. Something that gave you a valuable emotional or empathic insight as a child may not hold the same weight with you as an adult. You need not insist something holds up in order to claim benefit from it at an earlier time. If I'm being honest, I feel much the same way about people. This is how I square my personal circle when it comes to the evaluation of historical figures in light of the mores of this current year of 2023. Given the social climate and available information of, say, 1066, 1776, or 1986, I cannot in good conscience claim I would do anything different than most people in those times did. Sure, there are historical rebels who did their best to push humanity in what they believed was a positive direction, but even Alexander Hamilton owned slaves. That Ham's owned fewer people than some other founding fathers of the United States and seemed inclined to make moves to end the practice does not excuse the fact that he owned people. And yet, you and I, dear listener, are doubtless also engaged in a dozen practices right now, today, in this moment, that will be scoffed at by future epochs as the very lowest pit of human folly. I cannot predict what those would be. Although, just for fun, I'll make a guess. I would say that future generations will probably judge us harshly for our flagrant consumption of fossil fuels, or perhaps our abuse of ourselves and others via social media platforms. But more on that another time. I bring up A. Ham, 
not to relitigate his participation in the horrors of an industry that was instrumental in founding some aspects of the early American Republic's industrial strength, but rather to point out the simple fact of his positive contributions. In his time, and in his way, he did his best to add something good to the sum total of human experience, even if in a truculent and obstreperous way. Words, I must add, seem tailor-made to describe him with peculiar precision. What I am getting at is my hope that we may still acknowledge the ways in which our past informs our present without necessarily praising every aspect of it without question, or even, let's face it, remembering it with perfect clarity. As I am now viewing them through the imperfectly ground lens of the telescope of my memory, Many of the things recalled in this series will probably be presented with inaccurate, confused, or just plain wrong details. But that is all for the good, I think, as it will allow us to focus on the uplifting and inspiring things my adult life has derived from occasionally difficult influences. Even if you do not find my journeys inspiring, perhaps you will at least be moved to think about your own list of that which you find inspiring informative. Everything selected for consideration in the upcoming episodes of this podcast series was something I encountered prior to moving out of my parents' house at the age of 18. This is, I admit, a somewhat arbitrary dividing line, especially since from this lofty vantage of 35 years, I would argue I was still very much a child well into my 20s as anyone who knew me during that unsettled and turbulent decade will heartily attest. I choose to focus on these younger years because my selection of media and experiences was more limited, and also less intentional on my part. As an adult, I am no longer constrained by parental control. I am free to seek out any film, book, website, or companion I choose. But because of this limited scope of choice in my early life, I was much more likely to treasure those experiences which most challenged my reality. Lacking any other option for amusement or enrichment, I was forced to engage with what I had access to, rather than simply wander away and forget something as soon as I was done. On to the next one. I did not have the luxury afforded by this sad age of social media domination. Back in the 90s, we could not click dislike or block the unsettling things from our personal feeds. The upsetting was everywhere. The feed was just life. But I would be lying if I said my early years were one big, glorious explosion of unfiltered, capital L, capital I-F-E, life. For good or ill, those first two decades of my existence were full of many kinds of control and censorship. Not only my parents, but the broader community I grew up in had a strong effect on what I was and was not allowed to read, watch, and spend my time doing. I had video cassettes taken away because of the blurb on the back of the box. The names of certain bands were forbidden to be spoken in our home, and on one memorable occasion a book was literally pulled from my hands. And yet... All of this served to give me not a fear of difficult media, but rather a love of it. From a young age, I engaged in the mental exercise of considering how I would defend the merit of the book I was reading, or the album I was listening to. 
because everything not in the Bible was up for review at any moment. Even the Bible was up for scrutiny, depending on the translation and how it reflected the mores of my parents' current church community. Rather than causing me anguish, these cerebral adjudications encouraged me to actually pay attention to the media I was consuming and the life experiences I was living. My mother used to sum up this philosophy of engaged consumption by saying, chew the meat, spit out the bones. Or was it swallow the meat, spit out the bones? Doesn't matter. What she meant was you can pick through just about anything and find bits of worth. My earliest memory of her quoting this axiom was in reference to a picture book about dinosaurs, which opened with a line, something like, Millions of years ago. If you're interested, the book in question is a 1988 picture book called The Last Dinosaur by Jim Murphy. Jim Murphy. Jim Murphy and Mark Allen Weatherby. The paintings that illustrate it are beautiful, if not quite scientifically accurate anymore. My mother, a young Earth creationist, was happy to admit that dinosaurs existed and that most of the information in the book regarding their size, behavior, appearance, and diet was correct. Where she ran into a problem was the fact that this book took it as a fact that the Earth had been created decidedly earlier than her preferred date of 4004 BC. If you find that date oddly, if not humorously, Specific, you will doubtless be tickled to learn that it was a bit of a sport among 18th century savants to attempt to calculate the exact age of the Earth using complex mathematical formulae and literary analysis of the Bible. The various pamphlets, speech transcriptions, and books where they attempt to show their work are often as arcane as they are diverting. But let's return to my mother. I'm not sharing this story to paint a picture of her as a closed-minded fundamentalist, but rather to sort of indicate that she was almost the opposite. It was a kind of liberal-mindedness, in a way. She believed that even at a young age, I was capable of understanding that not every single piece of information in the dinosaur book was 100% true. In hindsight, she was right. Parts of the book were wrong. While I maintain that the Earth is a skosh older than, at the time of this writing, 6,027 years old, there were other things in that book that I have since come to learn were inaccurate. The lack of feathers on the T-Rex is probably the most obvious in light of modern understandings of dinosaur biology, but there are doubtless others. Analysis of the book's specifics aside, the wider lesson remains strong. My mother felt it was possible to get something worthwhile out of a book she did not 100% agree with. Her child wanted to learn about dinosaurs, and this book was available to provide information. I like thinking about these early experiments with discernment because in many ways they paved the way for my adult predilection to see the nuance in things. Not only in the media I consume, but also in the activities and even people I choose to engage with. Another youthful example. Unlike a few of my friends in high school, I never tagged any buildings with graffiti. I had thought the matter over and decided that were I to be caught, I would have no valid reason for my behavior. 
in the case of this particular activity, anyway. If Vice Principal Brorsma were to drag me to the school office and ask, Why did you deface the school wall? My only response would be, I don't know. It seemed cool, I guess. I knew that if pressed, I would not be able to formulate any kind of a reasonable argument for why I was scrawling on someone else's wall. It was only later in my early 20s that my position on graffiti evolved in light of later, more, shall we say, punk sensibilities. If all of this sounds unreasonably wise for a teenager, fear not, I was not the second coming of Mary Poppins. Film version, not book version. Those books are incredible. I uh, just like, in terms of being so different than what you think they're going to be about. I have recently read the first two and go read the first Mary Poppins book. It's, it is unreal how different it is from the film versions. Uh, I made plenty of other mistakes in the pursuit of things that seemed cool to teenage me. It was just that on occasion, I was able to discern the relative value of one particular behavior over another. I mean, I always drove too fast and had received three speeding tickets and precipitated two automobile accidents before I turned 18. Sure, I was an overconfident driver, but I never drove under the influence of any substances because at that point, I felt I was putting other people in danger for my convenience. Fascinating where we draw the line, no? Speeding? Not putting other people in danger. Driving under the influence? Putting other people in danger. Guess we all draw our lines somewhere. If all of this sounds to you like oh-so-much preemptory throat-clearing before I begin a series about art that I liked as a kid, you would not be far from the mark. Yet, I do think there is a slightly larger purpose being served here. This series is about me attempting to come to grips with some of the key ingredients of the person I am today. They reflect the questions and considerations I am trying to put to myself about myself. If I am truly a person dedicated to self-examination in order to be a more effective positive force in the world around me, then these are the kinds of things I must be asking myself. The arguments made in the preceding 4,000-word essay are, as much as I am able to approximate a kind of distillation of the Donnybrook within my own mind as to whether or not I even should create this series in the first place. As this introduction draws to a close, all I can do is repeat my comment from the beginning of this episode. These are the things that made me who I am today. If you find value in that person, you might find value in the following essays. One more thing before I end this episode. It is my dearest wish that this podcast series is more interactive than previous seasons. As such, I want to take the time to incorporate my responses to questions and comments from you within the actual podcast. So I'm going to be making this more interactive in two ways. First, each episode will have a companion episode, kind of a part B, I guess, which will include a chat with a relevant friend. It's going to work like this. Once I've finished writing and recording the main episode for the month, 
about the piece of art in question, I'm going to send it to a friend who also had experiences with that thing in their childhood. My friend will then listen to the episode and then hop on mic with me to share their own memories and thoughts. For instance, my episode on Christian rock music will feature a chat with a friend that accompanied my family to several concerts. If you've ever wondered who Strangely's Girl at the Rock Show was circa 2002, you'll get to find out. Some of these guests will be familiar to you if you've followed my artistic career, but others may surprise you. I'm a big fan of Boz Lerman's Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen. Not only does the song have a catchy beat, but it also provides a perfect vessel for Mary Schmick's delightful litany of advice for young people just starting out in life. Even if I hadn't followed all of the advice as well as I would like, it pleases me beyond measure to note that I have, to paraphrase the song, worked hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle to keep up with the people who knew me when I was young. Over the course of the upcoming year, you'll hear from a friend who has been flying for the Air Force for the better part of two decades, and find out what my high school girlfriend thinks of my favorite album from junior year. The second way I want to make this podcast more interactive is to solicit questions and ideas from all of you. If you find something in one of my episodes particularly moving, exciting, confusing, infuriating, or, I don't know, just plain wrong please do not hesitate to write to me. As I currently lack anything approaching a fixed address, you can send an email to saftp at tuta.io. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll do my best to engage with your thoughts on air on the podcast. I've also left an intentional gap in the schedule toward the end of this series because I know that as I write, more memories and ideas from my youth are going to arise. I also know that some of you might remind me of things that I'd forgotten. To that end, while I have a pretty strong plan for the first 11 episodes of this series, the 12th is currently wide open. Who knows what will happen? I look forward to sharing these things with all of you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends Presents Spit Out the Bones. If you're enjoying my writing, music, storytelling, or any of the other sundry divertisements I create, consider becoming a patron of my work. If you're interested in more information about that, you can head over to patreon.com strangely to join an ever-growing cavalcade of motley characters who support this wild ride I am lucky enough to call a life. I've got a few interesting perks like access to my personal locator beacons so you can always check in on exactly where on earth I am at any given moment. To everyone who is already a patron, thank you so much for believing in the work I do and more importantly, thank you for believing in me personally. It's support like yours that gives me the confidence to take risks, like climbing up the mast of a tall ship in an arctic fjord to play accordion, but more on that another time. If you have any questions, comments, ideas, or you'd just like to get in touch, please shoot me an email at saftp at tuta.io. I would love to hear about your personal influences as well. Once again, that email is saftp at tuta.io. I look forward to hearing from you. I'll catch you all in two weeks when I'll be talking about... Should I say it? Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. Homeschooling. See you next time.